from KQED. Hey there, everybody. It's Scott Schaefer here, politics editor at KQED and host of The Political Mind of Jerry Brown. We're bringing you a bonus episode today. It's a live conversation I had with former Governor Jerry Brown on January 13th at the Herbst Theater in San Francisco. Brown shared his thoughts on the 2020 election, education policy, and what he's going to do for his next official gubernatorial portrait. Hope you enjoy it. All right. Good evening. Thanks for coming. So, Governor, it is 2020. 2020 is here, and that marks 50 years since your first statewide campaign. Big election this year. Actually, 51. 51. First campaign was uh, uh, L.A. Community LA College. L.A. Community College Board, 1969. First, yeah, first statewide campaign. 1970. See, this is what it was like talking with him for 40 hours. He questions every question. But let me just ask you, uh, <laughs> um, you're watching carefully what's going on. Uh, what's your take on how the Democrats are going about nominating somebody in, in, in this election year and what you've seen so far? Well, they have, the candidates have to go about whatever the system is. And the system allows for dozens of candidates initially and all these different state primaries. Um, this is a system very different from what it was, uh, say, 60 years ago when uh, Stevenson was the nominee and it didn't even run in primaries. Then when uh, Kennedy ran in, in 60, he ran in just a few primaries. And those primaries were, you know, Wisconsin. I it was more like smoke-filled room kind of decisions, right? Right, there are a few primaries and then you had the, the party leaders decide. So now you have this populist um, effort from Ohio, uh, from uh, Iowa, New Hampshire. So I think it's a very uh, challenging gauntlet. It's very hard to look good, first in a big array of a dozen people, but secondly with all the questions, because each debate is an effort by the moderator and the candidates to try to trip up the other guy or to say something memorable. and. Um, so that's not the most illuminating way to display the big issues uh, of the country. So uh, one thing, uh, the, the president, by being out of all that, uh, has an advantage uh, in one way. On the other hand, when you go through that primary, you've really honed your talents as a debater, a thinker under fire. So um, I don't think the big issues get the same uh, focus in, in this kind of process. I mean, for me, climate change, uh, the threat of uh, a nuclear mistake where the weapons go off because there's a false alarm, uh, those are big issues, and what are we doing about them? In my opinion, not nearly enough. But it's hard to bring that up. Um, Why? Why is it hard? It's complicated. It's, um, it's not news of the day. The um, news works on what New York Times or somebody said, and then, uh, you know, man bites dog, it's something issue, somebody tripped up, or uh, the single payer, people like it, people don't like it, then you have, that goes on, and then the next thing, um, the border, the abolish ice. So you got a lot of issues. Uh, I think the issues are basically, can you get eyeballs? How do, how do the producers get people to watch, and how do the candidates get remembered? And that, that exercise is different from inquiring what are the big issues facing the country and what are some of the responses that we ought to be considering. 
So I think there is a disconnect between the process of selecting the president and what the president has to do once he gets there. When you look at the field, and it's getting smaller, Cory Booker dropped out today. Um, it's down to, I don't know, about a dozen people or so. I mean, who, who, who impresses you, like, in terms of the, the, the gravitas that they have? Because I know, like, the issues that you mentioned, nuclear proliferation, international issues, climate change, like, who, who do you think is at least thinking about those things in a, in a coherent way? Well, I'm sure they're all thinking about it, but because uh, we don't have a television at the ranch, I don't have to watch them. <laughs> And I don't. Uh, I do uh, have my, my cell phone through the internet. I can pick up, uh, pick up what uh, the New York Times or, or the Washington Post have to say about it. Uh, so I do see little snippets and clippets, clips. Uh, but I'm not, I, I don't want to single out any, I wasn't going to say I'm not impressed. Um, well, I know, for example, you did a podcast with no, Pete Buttigieg. No, when you, you run all, when you know it yourself, you have your own thoughts. Some of them are impressive uh, in the moment. I guess what I appreciate is when someone gets a tough question and can respond uh, with aplomb. I saw that uh, uh, Buttigieg did that. Um, Warren is in pretty incredible, all the uh, plans and details she have, and Bernie has a lot of um, excitement and energy. And, and, but Biden, of course, is ahead. He's the, you know, he is the man of experience. So there's all of that. But I, I, I'm still worried about, uh, we almost got in a war in Iran. America has, is still um, framing itself. Or many of the leaders, both in politics and media, uh, think of America as the indispensable power, as the absolutely exceptional country. And we, because of that, are in 700 uh, military bases around, around the world. And our so-called security interests are everywhere, from Sudan to Taiwan to, to Afghanistan to Iraq to Liberia, you name it, Liberia, Libya. And so uh, I'd like to hear people talk about, well, is that sustainable? Can an aging population that is no more than 4.1% of the world continue to be boss almost everywhere? And I think the answer is obviously we can't. So then what do we do? I think that uh, the big challenge is, what is the role of America, and it can't be what it is now. I mean, a war uh, in Afghanistan, 18 years, 17 years in Iraq, uh, incredible. There's nothing like it. World War II was less, I think, around four years. So World War I and II uh, and the Civil War all combined are not as long as the Iraq War, which, by the way, was started on either a lie or, or misrepresentation of what they knew. So I think we've got to talk about that. So what, what, what is that? By the way, I do think survival has to trump domestic issues. Now, I'm not saying that inequality and all the things we worry about at home, big stuff. But if we're not here, then they're really not problems. <laughs> and at the rate we're going, we're going to have climate disruption. And it's, you know, these fires in Australia are a foretaste. Um, so, and, and by the way, when you, every molecule of CO2 you put up in the atmosphere, it stays there for hundreds of years. So unless somebody figures out a way, which they haven't yet, of extracting these heat-trapping gases from the atmosphere, we're in for deep trouble. And then, of course, we have these thousands of nuclear warheads, and something I didn't realize till recently, even though I ran for president three times, there have been several occasions where the United States thought that Russia had launched 
uh, missiles against America, and there's several times when the Russians thought we'd launched hundreds of missiles against them. Software mistake. Well, uh, that was overcome part by luck, part by the people who got the message, not putting up the chain of command, and also because we were talking uh, with the Russians in America. Our intelligence agencies, our military, our diplomats, uh, and our executive branches. Today, there's virtually no talk. So if there's a mistake on the software, uh, like they had in Hawaii where they thought there was a nuclear attack, we have missiles that, are, that don't wait for the other missile to land. They say, we've got to fire it before it gets here. Well, the way you fire it before it gets here is to follow your software program. So I just let, in case you were feeling comfortable, I want to start out. <laughs> uh, there's some big stuff out there, and I don't think it's going to work with a tweet. I don't think it's going to work in a debate. Uh, so we'll have to wait to the speeches, I guess, in the general election. But there are big stuff out there, and if we handle the foreign, then we can come back, and uh, at home we've got plenty of stuff to worry about here. You mentioned Australia, and of course you've been talking about the environment. In fact, I heard a speech as we were doing research for this show. Uh, you were talking about the ozone in 1976, you know, when you ran. No one was really talking about that. Why do you think it's so difficult? I mean, some candidates like Steyer, you know, are focusing on climate change, but and voters say they're concerned about it. But, you know, in terms of changing our behavior, it's really tough. To well, climate change, the word climate, you know, there's business climate, you know, there's intellectual climate, and then there's the climate. So it's the most abstract term you can think of, and so is change. So it's not like, um, you know, crime in the streets, or uh, mass unemployment, or uh, p poisonous pollutants, uh, c c uh, polluting the water that you drink. Those are real things. Or being able to pay your medical bills. That's something people can relate to. Millions of people uh, have, ha have difficulty paying for their medical bills. So that's a real. Now, the fact that these other things, like climate change or nuclear blunder, are, are rather remote and abstract, doesn't mean they're any the less real, uh, but it does test the ability of a popular democracy to deal with serious, serious stuff. How confident are you that technology will come to the rescue when it comes to climate change? Oh, I'm not. I, I, we don't know. I mean, we have no idea what's going to happen in the future. Technology, it, it isn't just technology. That's a big piece. Um, you know, it'd be nice if we could bring the cost of batteries down so we could store intermittent uh, solar and wind-driven electricity. That would be a huge, big answer. But it also is going to take different attitudes. What do we want? What does our society value? So it, it's a change in our way of living, and it's, an, uh, it's a technological innovation. And the, the, the difference on climate change, it's not just America. It's not just California. It's Russia. It's China. It's India. Africa. Everyone's in it together. Uh, and that requires a complete paradigm shift. Because the world works now, if you read the national, secu the national security policy or the uh, posture view, whatever they call that, those things where they tell us what our national policy is, America's num uh, goal is to be dominant. Our goal with uh, 320 million people is to make sure we're always richer and stronger uh, than the Chinese with 1.4 billion. Well, that's going to really wear us out trying to make that equation come out right. So we've got to find a world uh, 
where we can learn to live in harmony with other dangerous countries, but also with nature itself. And that is going to require, I mean, the changes are, are profound. They don't happen overnight. Will they happen? Uh, hard to say. Um, I think we have a, a fighting chance of surviving, but I wouldn't give, I wouldn't bet the bank on it. Yeah. So, I wouldn't bet the ranch on it. Let me put it that way. <laughs> um, a lot of people feel this is really a critical election for that reason and other reasons. Um, coming back to the process and, you know, there's this whole debate about the Democrats, should they nominate somebody who's electable, somebody who can win, versus somebody who is more diverse and maybe will bring out more people in communities that don't vote? I mean, how do you, do you think that's, is that a conversation worth even thinking about? Yeah, talking? well, uh, I think uh, replacing Trump is a good thing from my point of view. So. I really hope that who's ever in charge, and if it, it'll be the delegates, if it's a first ballot, if you go to a second ballot, then some of the party leaders come into the mix, and it'll be a mixed decision. But I think the key, a key should be, I mean, if you're a basic Democrat, can you win? What does it look like? If you can tell. Uh, one of the problems, and, and I'm, I'm sure we're going to give you uh, good news th throughout this discussion, but somebody was talking to me recently that if uh, a Democrat wins, and you know the economy is now in the 11th year of recovery, we're probably going to get in a recession. If it doesn't happen before the election, it'll be soon after. And if it's bad enough, then the Democrat will get in there and get we're going to have big unemployment, stock market will go down, people start, you know, so it could be. Where's the good news you're promising? No, but it could be that if we get a Democrat, four years later, we might get somebody like Trump or worse. On the other hand, if we don't get rid of Trump, we get Trump. So we know that's bad, and we have total climate disaster. If not, well, this latest example where, where uh, Trump, on his own, with a little push from Pompeo and John Bolton, says, okay, let's assassinate uh, the number one war hero in Iran, and then we'll see what happens. Well, we lucked out so far. Um, so that tells me you really want to get a president who can think through the implications, the long-term consequences. Uh, this is not the next move, but over time, what will uh, produce the greatest stability and uh, well-being uh, in the world. And I don't think that uh, this was, you know, a shot. But by the way, we are getting into an assassination habit. Uh, after I saw that, I called up um, uh, a writer named Alexander Coburn. Uh, he's been writing about, wrote a book on, on these, these grown killings. And he sent me an email with a report. It said, since uh, the, toward the end of Bush's, toward Bush's term, Bush, Obama, and Trump, there have been seven, over 7,000 um, uh, killings by drone or airport, uh, airplane. And over 25,000 people have been killed. And hundreds are children. And you know of the 25,000, they're not, you know, how many terrorists, they're terrorists and all that, but there's a lot of other people, the driver, uh, whatever. So uh, we want a president who can think through how do you deal with terrorism, but how do you also have some rules? Like, what was the rule for uh, killing that Iranian general? Is there a rule? Do they have a procedure? Or is it just Trump wakes up and says, hey, I think we can get him, let's take him out. That is not rule, and yet we say the number one 
difference between America and Russia and America and China is we're a rule-based society. We have norms that govern our conduct. But that looked to me uh, very uh, individual, normless. Just get them, take them out, zap. And by the way, in that one, um, before that, two days before, uh, Trump ordered um, the killing of uh, these militias characters, these uh, Shiite militias, and uh, 24 or 25 people were killed two, days, two or three days before, and then taking out that general, they had to kill nine other people. So that's 35 people uh, because the Iranians killed yeah. uh, a contract. So all that is saying, we better get a president who has a good sense of, of morality and a sense of wisdom and a sense of restraint. So I wish the debates would surface that yeah. particular issue. So you ran for president the first time uh, in 1976, uh, and we actually have a, a clip here from you, that first uh, campaign, uh, and you were governor a little over a year uh, when you announced you were going to yeah. run. You were about 37, six years old, I think? About, 37, probably. In April, I was 38. 38. April 7th is your birthday, I right? I think I announced so, in March. So let's take a quick look. This is like a 30-second clip, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. The way to get confidence in government is for government to be honest with itself, not to oversell, not to, to build up promises that will never be fulfilled. And at the same time, to recognize that there's a lot to be done. And we just have to keep working away while telling people what we can do and what we can't. It's a simple idea, but it's one that's increasingly novel in this age of, of over-expectation, overselling, and over-promising in the federal government. You had a lot of hair back then. I did. I well, still think we're over-promising. Yeah. Well, and, I, 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 who was it that said under-promise under and over-deliver? Yeah. Well, that's, that's a good, good policy. You, um, you announced uh, on a Friday afternoon, I think it was around like 5 in the afternoon, according to Gray Davis, we spoke to him, and uh, it almost seemed like it was spontaneous. Like you just, somebody kept, they kept pushing you, pushing you, pushing, and you finally said, well, yeah, I guess I'll run. No, uh, well, no a little more intentional than that. Uh, but it was 5 o'clock on a Friday, right? Uh, no, I think it was, it was in an interview after some event. Um, they had an event, and we brought in the, some of the, uh, the head of the AP, Doug Willis. Uh, but I knew what I was going to do that. I thought about it. And I realized that whether you have a press conference or a rally, you get about the same amount of news. But to do it that way, I thought, well, it's more convenient. But I also thought it would be more memorable. And it was. Hmm. So you, this was like March of yeah. night. So this is like, this would be like, like somebody had throwing their right. hat in the ring in two in, months for right. 2020, right? Right. So w w what were you thinking? By the way, Bobby, Bobby Kennedy threw in his uh, hat somewhere, uh, was it March? But LBJ, LBJ it dropped the, out. It was after the Wisconsin primary. Yeah. But Gene McCarthy was in. Um, what was I thinking? Well, I mean, what was your strategy? I was thinking that running for president would be more interesting than being governor. That's what I thought. <laughs> As I went on too long talking about all these foreign policy problems, the big issues are not only interesting, they're profoundly important. And those issues are dealt um, mostly at the national level. But I have to say, I, the, the governorship was interesting, but it wasn't that interesting the first time. Now, the second time around, I found it really interesting. I, I, I maybe, well, one thing is we had more to do. There were more, by the time I came around the second time, there were so many problems. 
that it was easy to see what you had to do. Like, for example, a $27 billion deficit, uh, okay, we got to get rid of it. That was simple. Uh, my first time, 75, things were going pretty well. I used to go in you know, my office, sat there, and I said, now what the hell can I do here? And the whole machine is running. you got 120 legislators. They're passing hundreds of bills. Everything's moving along. What can I do that wouldn't be done except that I'm here? And I, that was hard to do. Yeah, I mean, I, you did I, the Farm Labor Relations Act. I did the Act. Farm Labor, did a few things. Now, the second time around, untrue, there was, we had a $27 billion deficit. We had all sorts of, of issues. Uh, well, we needed more money, so I had to go out to get a, a tax, uh, tax increase. We had to get a water bond. We needed to get a rainy day fund. Uh, we needed to change the way schools were financed because uh, where the greatest challenges were, uh, they often had the least amount of money. So we created this formula that you sent significantly more money to school districts that had more low-income families and more families that uh, did not speak English as their first language. So um, that all goes to say being governor the second time was quite satisfactory in itself. Governor the first time, well, within 14 months, I was looking to Washington. Yeah, were you, you were just thought you'd run out of things to do or you just weren't interested? <laughs> no. Well, first of all, I knew I could do both, <laughs> which I did. Everything went, everything went well, but, you know, I could tell you, it actually runs down. This, uh, but it doesn't what? matter what you do, because after a couple of years, generally governors get unpopular. Yeah. This time, I've been able to avoid that fate. Yeah. I got through it. Well, uh, but well, I think, even to tell you the truth, it is hard to, why the hell I ran for president after 14 I think it's a good question. <laughs> 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 and I was as surprised as anybody when I beat Carter in Maryland. That was quite, uh, uh, yeah. that really was surprising. Well, tell, tell that story because... In that fact, that was the highlight of my life. It's been downhill ever since. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when I, you go to Maryland, I was, uh, the election was in May. I got 51%, I think. Carter got less than 40%. And I had no chance of winning. So what is that? It doesn't give you a lot of confidence. Well, and you were, you were, as you told us, is helpful, you were new and fresh, right? You were a, a right. fresh face at that time. Uh, did you, you feel like you were look, looking back on it? Were you By ready? By the way, freshness is really important. Um, this is something that my opponent in 2011 missed. Meg Whitman spent $100 million, a lot of it advertising her, her face, her voice, her ideas. Uh, she spent $100 million before I started. You know, I became the fresh face. Uh, <laughs> after Labor Day. It was old, not as much hair as you saw in the last commercial, but they hadn't seen it. All they did was see Meg Whitman. So, freshness is good. What did you, what did you think? By you, the way, you get unfresh after about four primaries. <laughs> yeah. I the, thought I was rolling because I won in Delaware. Uh, then I got into Oregon. I, I didn't have, I, it was too late, so I had to run as a writer, and I came in third. We won California, big. I won California, yeah. two to one. Yeah, big. What yeah. did you think uh, you could do as president at the age of 37 years old? Uh, well, I, I don't know if I can remember now. <laughs> That's a long time ago. Uh, I did coin a, a phrase, which I think is still good. It, it, uh, I, I, I turned my my policies, planetary realism, and the... What's so good about that? Well, I'll tell you. Well, I don't know that it is good, but I think, it, A, it sounded good. 
to me, anyway, I don't know, it didn't make a lot of difference. What does end. it mean? Well, I'll tell you what it means. Re realism in uh, political uh, philosophy, uh, realists are the hard-boiled, uh, real politique, uh, balance of power, don't, don't let uh, idealism and sentiment cloud your judgment. At the end of the day, uh, every nation seeks its own interest, and you have to take that into account. You don't go around the world trying to save it. Uh, you try to create a, uh, your own security, uh, and the best of that is you respect the security of others. So that's the old-fashioned real politic. But I add it to it, planetary, which has that little more moonbeamish uh, yeah, quality. I asked you about that. And that was to be, <laughs> keep your feet on the ground, that's the realism, but planetary, we're all in it together. It's the larger uh, vision of things, and uh, it did have the idea, I don't know how much I thought of it then, but we'd still have this idea that we have to be, one, number one, we have to be dominant. But as soon as you say that, there's somebody else come along who's number two, and their whole goal is to become number one, and it may get very dangerous when we get close to who's one and who's two. So the paradigm shift has to be, we're on one planet, uh, we are on this globe of interacting uh, weather and, and water and uh, germs and technology and trade and money and ideas. All of that is part of a circle and we're all in it. So it's not like you can just go in a straight line always gathering more and more as you go because there's somebody in front of you. And so you have to find a way where everybody in this giant feedback loop has their place and can make it. And we have enough, as Gandhi said, we have enough for our need, but not enough for our greed. And, and that is some of the ideas I was thinking of uh, with the term planetary realism, which, by the way, is still around. It's right there available to somebody because they haven't used it. <laughs> I doubt if no one here has ever remembered it. I'm the only person who remembers yeah. it. You, you mentioned the, uh, the, the Moonbeam thing, Governor Moonbeam, and I, I've heard different things. I mean, Mike Royko, the columnist, popularized it, but I'd heard that it was first something Linda Ronstadt had said in Rolling no, Stone magazine. Well, I was maybe up, she did. I didn't read the article. But what did you, like, was that something that you thought, oh, my God, that's like, uh, that's going to tar me for the rest of my life? No, like, I, I what, didn't did think Did you embrace it? it? No, I don't embrace journalists. <laughs> 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 Mischaracterizations. Um, no, it obviously uh, belittled, and yeah, that, that was not helpful because, as you said, gravitas is one of the terms you asked me about the candidate. So you do want to have that stature, and Moonbeam does not feel grounded, I would say. <laughs> but the, and part of it was the satellite. Uh, we had somehow, I, I, uh, this would actually foment the Moonbeam image. But uh, right after the election, uh, first, one of the first things I did was uh, I decided I wanted to go to Tassajara, which is a Buddhist monastery down in Monterey. Uh, I just thought, this is what I want to do, take a couple of days to, and I'd never been to a Buddhist monastery. So off I went, and then I went to the San Francisco Zen Center, and at that time they had a little gathering, and Rusty Schweikart, I believe he was there, the astronaut. The astronaut. Or if he wasn't there, through the people I met there, Stuart Brand and others, I got to know Rusty Schweikert, and he was a bright guy, so I said, well, come and work for me. Well, no other governor 
had their own astronaut <laughs> working for them. Well, once you have an astronaut, well, the next step is you got to have a satellite. So Rusty started working on the idea of California getting its own satellite, which is the technical term as a SYNCOM for satellite that would have California itself as the, as the footprint, and it would be at geosynchronous orbit and go to 26,000 miles up. And then with that focusing on California, we could have a communication, emergency communication. You could have the state, instead of flying people back and forth on airplanes with briefcases, we could just send that uh, digital stream of information through communication. That time, we didn't have uh, the same communications that we have today. But that satellite would have had real benefit, and we were going to get a deal because it would go up on the shuttle, and it would have only cost four, four or five million dollars. Uh, today, these things cost several hundred million. So it was a good idea. But then Proposition 13 came along, and everybody said, we got to save money, and it seemed a little outlandish. So we pulled back, and it, it never happened. But it was still a good idea, uh, but it also illustrates the idea that uh, politicians, to be enduring and to be safe, you don't want to stand out too much. Because when you, uh, you get too bold, then your mistakes become more memorable. If you just cool it a bit, then even when you make mistakes, they're not as memorable. Um, but, I kinda, but I get bored with things if they're not that challenging. That's why I like high-speed rail. Uh, I like to deal with climate change. Uh, I like to deal with prison reform. Uh, and I like this idea of a satellite. It just, and part of planetary realism is you got to have satellites monitoring the, uh, the environment of low Earth orbit, of, of, of the land, of the water, the atmosphere. So it was a good idea, uh, but it turned out to uh, get me this. The other thing, there's another aspect to Moonbeam. Because I would talk about these things that are more remote um, and not, you know, educational finance or what Mundane. completing a highway, and I'll tell you why those things don't interest me. First of all, they're very complicated. They're endlessly, I mean, if you want to think about the highways of California, there's no end to that. Think of how many roads there are. Um, and so, and by the way, each of those interests, highway lobby, they have the truckers, the cement pourers, the real estate salesmen, they got enough people pushing the highways, you don't even need a governor. They'll keep building the highways if you have Mickey Mouse in, in the governor's office. Uh, same thing with education. You have lots of uh, educator folks, parents, PTA, teachers union, uh, concerned citizens. So all that's going on. So that's why the stuff like uh, climate change, satellites, um, different Buddhism, these are the things that interest me. Yeah. Um, that's quite a list. Uh, <laughs> but so what does Moonbeam means? It means you're not dealing with stuff on Earth. You got your head in the stars. Well, if you can keep your feet on the ground and your head in the stars, that's a good combination. Yeah. Well, and that whole satellite thing echoed back, right? When yeah. they said, I think after Trump got elected, and I, I don't know if they were threatening federal funding, and you just said, we'll launch our own damn satellite. I mean, that was what you were thinking, right? That was like and an echo. And satellites are being launched, uh, very small satellites, yeah. dozens. Uh, in fact, I was just talking to uh, Will Marshall, who's... Um, who's the head of this company, 
and he said the, the, the first pictures of the killing of Soleimani came through the satellites launched from California. Mm. These are small satellites, they're launching them all the time, and they're monitoring the environment. So we did launch, not me, but people in California yeah. launched yeah. their own damn satellites, plural, yeah. and they're very, very important. You know, thinking back to Jerry Brown, you know, 1.0, uh, 1976, you'd just gotten into the governor's office, you know, there had been an unpopular president who was on the verge of being impeached and left. Um, there was a lot of, you know, low, uh, faith in government. And you know, now we have a governor who's young and new, relatively, uh, who clearly wants to be president. And I'm wondering- all, all governors in California want to be president. Some more than others. I mean, Wilson tried. He, yeah, Duke Majin is probably the only governor um, since my father. I'm sure he wanted to be president. And maybe Goodwin Knight before him. Warren wanted to be president. Yeah. So that's part of you're the biggest state, you figure yeah. why not. But do you, I'm just wondering, do you see, you know, when you look at Newsom, I mean, do you see any echoes of yourself at all? Well, he's young, he has a lot of hair. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else? Yeah, well, he talks, yeah, he, he, well, he's a little, long, long, a little longer in his budget presentations, but I remember my first budget presentation, I spoke for like an hour or something, because I wanted everybody to know that I knew what I was, that I knew the budget. But for me, it was a little more questionable because I didn't have a lot of experience. And people were saying, you know, what does this guy know? He's just elected yeah. in his father's name. So uh, I think he has a lot of enthusiasm. He's trying new ideas. I think all of that is similar. It's, it's different because he's a very different kind of person. Uh, but I think there are similarities. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Prop 13, uh, that was passed the same year you were up for re-election in, in yes. 1978. And I remember I was, I don't know where, I guess I was in college at that time. Uh, and I remember watching from afar. You don't look that young. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say, I can't believe you're that old. Um, I, well, I did, but I said it wrong. <laughs> but I remember, there were, it's, it seemed like you had all along endorsed Prop 13. Like when it passed, you just did this 180 pirouette. And in fact, the guy that ran, Howard Jarvis, I he think you fooled him. him. Like he, he, did, he did a commercial for you. I didn't fool him. I, you impressed I, him. I called him because I knew Howard Jarvis. That's a little known fact. Because um, I visited him. Uh, he had an initiative several years before to eliminate property taxes. And I called him up and said, I'd like to help you. Uh, I thought that would have been a hell of an issue to run on. Uh, so I went over to his house, uh, over on Crescent Heights, not too far from where I lived, in uh, Hollywood, and I noticed that on, his, uh, on the mantle of his fireplace, he had, a, he had a statue of Buddha, which I thought was very interesting, hmm. little known fact. Um, but he wanted to exempt from property tax all the apartment owners, and I only wanted to do houses. And I thought if you did apartment owners, it would take too much revenue, so he didn't get it done. But the general idea of limit, of, of putting some limit on spending, I thought, because I thought there's no other way to curb all the spending, that wasn't a bad idea. So, um, but everybody was against this damn thing, even my Republican opponent. But I, I was, uh, you know, I, I did think about it. Because, you thought about endorsing it. Well, I thought about it. No, I'm going to tell you the way it is. I knew it was to him. I knew it was popular. Look like a winner to me. I thought maybe we could beat it. And I ran around trying to beat it. But after it becomes law, 
It, w it wasn't the perfect. I came up with, an, uh, with one that was more limited, that you gave property tax relief only to homeowners and only to middle-income and lower-income homeowners, so we didn't have to take so much revenue out of the local government. That was the idea. But uh, Jarvis carried the day yeah. uh, because of the rapidly rising uh, yeah. costs. But um, uh, the, the, the other point about 13 that people don't know, they all say, I just changed my mind or something. No, uh, here's what happens. Once 13 passes, it's the Constitution. So you got to make it work. It's to, the, the game is over because the people, through the initiative, are the legislative body for that decision. But there have been ballot measures thrown out. What? There have been ballot measures thrown out by the courts. Right, but... Uh, that wasn't one. What of are you supposed to do? Say no, and then, you know, you can't... But the taxes were going to stop. The fire departments would have two-thirds less money. The fire departments, the schools, it had to be dealt with. Yeah. And so I dealt with it, and here's the paradox of politics, because I was very close... I was not at all ahead of my opponent, Evel Younger, but because we got a problem, because I got to solve it, because who else was going to solve it except the governor, um, then I got all the uh, yeah. notoriety for that, yeah. and I swept to victory 21 points, far more than my election. So you never know when uh, a lemon becomes yeah. lemonade. Yeah. So I, I just have to ask you, because we're coming into the, to today, I mean, Prop 13, of course, has really uh, messed with our finances. I mean, we're now much more reliant on personal income taxes, especially from the very wealthy, um, and that makes it more susceptible to those boom and bust cycles. And there's going to be a ballot measure uh, in November, probably, right. to basically remove commercial property from the protections of yeah. Prop 13. Are you for that? I haven't read, I'm not endorsing propositions or candidates tonight. What do you think of it? What are the pros and cons? I'm not sure. It, it, some form of more rapid um, increase in the assessments, uh, just like they are for homeowners, uh, should, ought to have some equivalent, probably, uh, with uh, companies. Yeah. But I'm not quite sure how that works, and I want to make sure how they treat ranch owners. <laughs> you get a carve-out, get a carve-out well, for ranch always, owners? They always carve out farms. Why, I don't know, because they're all Republicans. Yeah, interesting. So, um, just fast-forwarding a little bit, so you got reelected, of course, and uh, in the 1980, you decide again to run for yeah. president against Jimmy Carter. Did you have something against Jimmy Carter? No, but I thought he wasn't going to win. You thought he was vulnerable. I thought he was very vulnerable, and I was right. Yeah. Let's, uh, although not in the way you thought. Not to me. Yeah, not to you. Let's uh, watch a little clip here from your 1980 commercial. When I was a student at St. Brendan's Grammar School in San Francisco, <laughs> some of my friends, like children everywhere, wanted to be president. But I rejected politics, and eventually I spent four years studying for the priesthood. Now people ask me why I'm running for president and why I'm opposing an incumbent of my own party. Well, I love this country, but during the past decade, I've watched America lose out around the world. We're no longer respected for our strength, our moral purpose, or even our competence. I'm running for president because I believe our country needs fundamental changes, and I don't see that happening. A little tinkering here and there won't do the job. We need a government with the discipline to balance the budget stop the growth of nuclear power, and the vision to try new approaches to energy, to foreign relations, and to rebuilding our economy. The 1980s will challenge America, perhaps more than any previous time, 
and I'm determined to see us meet that challenge. So that was a complicated message. You ran to the left. It's a pretty damn good message. Well, you ran to the... I think that could work now. <laughs> you ran to the left on nuclear power, right? Get rid of the nukes. And then yeah. you ran to the right. You were for the balance, a balanced yeah. budget amendment. And that, you know what they call that? Cognitive, Cognitive dissonance. dissonance. Yeah, yeah, that was that. Well, that was a bad experience. That campaign went nowhere. Uh, was, that a, was that a mistake? Yeah, big mistake. Well, one of the problems here is... Uh, I didn't, well, it was looked one way, and then uh, because Carter was vulnerable, Ted Kennedy jumped in. And then once he got in, there wasn't room for a third candidate, but I was uh, ambitious. Or they might, you know, they talked the word blind ambition. I kept going, and it would have been better to have What stopped. did you think you could accomplish as president? Just what I said. I think we needed... We need to uh, change our relations with other countries in the world. Uh, we have to get new forms of energy that we know about climate change. And uh, we have to rebuild our economy in a way that is inclusive and that is uh, far less unequal than it is today. Yeah. I, I, think, I think it was you who said... And by the way, I don't think you have to give all these plans before you get elected because how you do these things is not go to your executive suite, get your experts, write a plan, and hand it to the Congress. It doesn't work that way. These are um, processes that you have an idea, a value, maybe you might call it a vision, and then you have to have the competence and the imagination, the skill to get it done. So I, those are general statements, but I think the ideas and the topics are important. How you get it done really is the mood of the country, uh, your ability to work with Congress, and your ability to mobilize interest groups uh, to promote what you're doing. Well, and bringing it back to today, I mean, there's this big debate over Medicare for all, yeah. you know, and that was something you pushed back against when you were governor. You said it's too expensive. We just can't afford it. Actually, I remained relatively silent, silent on the topic. When you were governor? Yeah. Can you remember anything I publicly said on the matter? Well, that was, I mean, that was typical until things kind of got to your desk, but you made it clear that where, you said, where's the money going to come from, right? I mean, you were very skeptical. Right. Where's the money? That's a pretty harmless question, isn't it? <laughs> Where the hell is the money? That applies to almost everything. Um, no, I knew there was a problem uh, because um, there's a political problem in that if you have to abolish private insurance, which became a big political problem in the Democratic primary, my first thought was, how the hell are you going to do that? Uh, so far, uh, Congress has been able to even get a handle on, on drug pricing because Big Pharma has more power. If you had Big Pharma uh, to the insurance companies, it'd be very hard to move that. So it's, I don't think it's going to happen anytime. I don't know if it won't happen absent the major crisis. Secondly, if you take uh, all the money that's paid on healthcare, right now healthcare is paid by the federal government, Medicare, uh, Medicaid, Medicaid, called Medi-Cal here, and veterans insurance, and then all the insurance companies, and then maybe 15% of the rest of it is out of pocket, or co-pays, or deductibles. Now, the theory, if you take all that, and you put it into the tax system, and say, okay, government, you run it, that's gonna be a big tax bill. Who is gonna vote for that? Um, uh, but, but that's like, what was the basis of Elizabeth Warren's campaign for a well, while. Right, and it's been a little trouble since then. Think of Affordable Health Care Act. It won, with no votes to spare, and the Republicans then 
took over the House and the Senate by one of the largest mar uh, margins in American history just by Obamacare. Then, fast forward eight years, and Tr uh, Trump, the House, was switched back to Democrats on the same issue, Obamacare, only going the other way. So... What does that tell you? That tells you, in politics, you have to be uh, flexible. <laughs> uh, that's, like, that's like, where's the money going to come from? You can say that about anything. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's important. You always want to say things that have multiple interpretations. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jess Unruh, the famous speaker, uh, he said some, whether you call it cynical or clever or just interesting and memorable, he said, you have to hang loose so you can swing at anything that comes along. <laughs> that's a baseball metaphor, I think. Yeah. I, I was surprised, by the way, as an aside, you don't strike me as a big jock, although I know you, you actually boxed in high school, right? You were once, a boxer one night, once. One night. Yeah. That was the highlight. But in the 40 hours we I spent... I won, too, by the way. Three rounds. But in, the, like, the 40 hours we spent with you, you had more, like, warriors metaphors and 49ers and baseball. I mean, you used to... I mean, that's just part Well, I of used politics. to be a cheerleader. What? At St. At Ignatius for two years. No one remembers that because they didn't put it in the yearbook. I don't know why. So... <laughs> You're probably lucky. It's buried. <laughs> it's buried in the, not buried. There's still live. Do you, do you remember any of the cheers? Like, what was oh. your favorite cheer? Uh, what is my favorite cheer? We'll all be true for the red and blue. We'll fight for St. Ignatius High. That's one. That's a good one. Did you have like a megaphone? <laughs> I had a megaphone. Megaphone. <laughs> we had a megaphone. Yes. Wow. We didn't have microphones. And we didn't yeah. have pom-pom girls because there was no girls oh, at SI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, no acrobatics. Yeah. Wow, I'm speechless now. I, I didn't realize you were. <laughs> but, uh, so yeah. you do follow, I did read this, the Green Sheet every day. What's that? The Chronicle. You know oh, what the, the Green Pages. The yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's it not green the, anymore. It was called, yeah. Well, it's kind of light green. Light green. Um, the entire sporting section was green, number one. Number two, they covered uh, the AAA league, which was the public school league that Lowell, Lincoln, St. Ignatius, Sacred Heart, yeah. Balboa, Lincoln, Galileo. This was interesting. Yeah. You, no, no. I mean, now you just look on your phone. No, but you don't see it in the paper. High school sports in San Francisco is not prominent enough, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah, okay. You know, uh, you, you, you've thought a lot about education, public education, yeah. right? You were yeah. mayor of Oakland. You started two charter schools, like yeah. an arts college, a school, and a military institute, yeah. and you, put, you funnel a lot of time and effort and focus on I, those I, schools, yeah. right? Um, and I know from talking with you up at the ranch that you're disappointed, maybe, in the performance of those schools and the kids that go to those schools, if that's, that's well, my I, characterization of well it. Well, no, that does accurately describe it. I, they're challenging, and they're, they're totally different schools. The art school is all about art and creativity and much more free form. Um, the military school is more structure, uh, uniforms, uh, order, uh, student leaders, uh, student commanders. So it's a, it's a different uh, context. Uh, but like all the schools, like I would say all, but I'd say 90% plus, uh, the performance is very much tied to family culture and income. And to overcome that uh, is quite challenging. 
So the art school has more higher income people in it, and its scores on state tests reflect that. Now, the military school, on the other hand, did get um, 20 kids into UC out of 85 graduates. I think that's pretty impressive. Uh, but we still have, in terms of- You're talking of, about the last graduating class? The last class? graduating yeah. class, yeah. But there's still not enough kids on grade level. Uh, well, if you look at the statewide uh, scores, 50% of California students are not at grade level. They have four, one, two, three, four, advanced, proficient, slightly below, far, uh, far below. Uh, half the people are in the first two categories, uh, below, far below. And, um, did, did you uh, and, and people and kids from lower income families, particularly families of color, are even much lower than that. Now, my goal in creating those schools was to overcome that by having an environment of art and creativity as the focus, and then having a military school where the discipline, the camaraderie, uh, that whole lore of the military would create the peer pressure to, uh, to succeed. Well, it, it, it works, but it's not at the level that I, won't, that I would like. And I'm now going back on the board, and I'm still fighting the good fight, and we're making progress. But when you, there is really a consequence to having so many families with uncertain incomes. It, it's not good for families to have not only a low income, but to have an uncertain income, to not have uh, adequate family uh, insurance, to not have uh, the opportunities that middle-class families have. Now, that is increasingly the experience of millions of kids uh, of the six million that go. So, correcting it in the classroom, when you have all this challenge and uh, some degree dysfunction at home, uh, it's really, uh, it's, it's like climbing Mount Everest. It takes a lot. And uh, people say, well, uh, we need charter schools. Some people say, we need more money. Other people say, well, the unions are the problem. It, uh, no, it's not, it's all of those, th it's, it's the problem of compensating for a very stratified, unequal, unfair system as that plays out in the hearts and minds of children. And so that's what we're up against. And that's what I'm... Yeah, By the so. way, when you look at some of these schools, more than half the kids are two, sometimes three grades behind. Now, how do you catch that up when this school starts in the sixth grade? Uh, it's challenging. Yeah. I, we're going to get there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this is... I think this, I started the school when America invaded Afghanistan. <laughs> But we're there, and we're going to succeed. You're going to get there. What, what role, and I'm a little reluctant to go down this rabbit hole, but I know you feel strongly about too much testing, too much reliance on data. What role is there for the federal government and the state? Because the state funnels, as you know, like so much money with yeah. strings oftentimes, uh, as oh. does the federal government. Uh, like, is, is, are they playing a constructive role? Well, the federal government has money. They only, I think they pay about 7% of public schools. So it's a pretty small role. Uh, but they have a lot of rules. And, uh, you know, they get right into, into what you can do and not do. Um, we see that in some of the colleges. I won't get into that topic. Um, but at the grammar school level, the state uh, has rules. We used to have 52 different programs from reading, 
to uh, English as a second language, to all sorts of special ed, uh, many, many kinds of programs. And each one of these program, each one of these programs had a funding stream, had auditing, and had rules. And we took those 52, we reduced them to, I think, 10 or 12, and we said, we'll give the money based on uh, uh, the poverty, uh, the income level, and the language challenges. And that's what we're doing. Now, the great challenge is the legislators want to fix things. And we do have these problems that I just described. And then the Congress wants to fix things. Uh, but the reality is uh, the learning goes on in the home, in the classroom, and the schoolyard. That's where the action is. And I took the idea, local control. We have locally elected school boards. We have, respond, we have teachers. We have principals. They're the ones who have to do it. All the legislature can do is pass laws. All the State Board of Education can do is pass implementing regulations. But they can't teach anybody. They're not in the classroom. So that's why we have 13 volumes of the education code. All they can, in fact, do up in Sacramento is to send emails. You guys aren't doing good enough. You better shape up, or we're going to put more rules on you. Uh, or we're going to shut you down, or we're going to put a trustee in. And that has totally failed. At the end of the day, we're completely dependent on the parents, the child, him or herself, and the teachers, and the responsibility of the local parents. If they don't do it, I don't believe the legislature can overcome that. They can give more money, and they should. Federal government can give more money, but they can't micromanage from hundreds of miles away what goes on every day in a classroom with 20 or 30 kids. That's the basis of uh, local control, backing up the teachers. Most teachers, it's a very small number of teachers that uh, don't want to do it. They all want it. Most of them, I'd say 98% want to do a good job. So you've got to give them the backing. And that's, that's the idea. But I believe the legislature already is going to start changing things. They want to, okay, scores aren't right, we better put in more program. Put in more program, you have to have more rules. How do you know when a rule is broken? Well, you have to have an audit. You've got to send in inspectors. And the inspectors have to file a report. File a report, you've got to have a committee hearing. Once you have a committee hearing, then you have to make a new rule. Then you send that rule out, then they don't obey that rule. Then you have to make a new rule, then you have to send the inspectors down. Are they passing the rule? Pretty soon, you're going to find out a huge percentage of education money is going to the inspectors, going to the data collectors, going to everybody but the teachers. So I would say give the money to the teachers and take your chances. Yeah. All right. So we're gonna, we started a little late, so I've taken a little liberty By to By the go. way, that's a very r radically deviant position. T trust teachers. Well, things aren't going right. Well, right, things aren't going right. We have but there are people who say teachers are the unions are the problem, not the teachers per se, but the union, the teachers' union. What do you think? I think that is nonsense. I'll tell you why. Uh, look, I, I've had, we have a school. We don't have tenure, and we don't have a teachers' union. It's challenging. The number one issue is what is the child hearing, learning, and experiencing from day one Year one, year two, kids, the cousins, the aunts, the neighborhood. Then you get into the school, what kind of teachers, uh, what's the environment, uh, 
can you help? Can the, it's all about the school working with the family. If that doesn't work, the only thing politicians can do is pass more rules. And that makes it, then that takes the authority of the principal and the teacher and it, it diminishes it. It, it cobbles them with all sorts of rules and it's a straitjacket. So you, we have goals, we have plenty of rules, the 13 volumes of the education code, and we have a lot of scrutiny. What we do need, we need more resources. We, that is true. Um, but uh, we've got to put our confidence in local people. And even if things are bad, people run for the school board. Parents get excited. People move out. So there's a lot of check and balance without getting Sacramento uh, legislators and governors in on the mix. Yeah. Other than to, to take a few problems, you know, every year or so deal with a few issues. But they have hundreds of bills on, the, on education every year. You signed a bunch of them. I, that's how I know about it. <laughs> I signed 16,000 bills, they became law, and those 16,000 bills became 100,000 regulations, and those 100,000 regulations became a million lawsuits. <laughs> Something wrong with that. Yeah. So, yeah. I know we need laws, we need regulations, we need lawsuits, but... Yeah. Um, Not so let many. Me, let me just, since you're here, I'll give you the hierarchy. First, you have a desire. You know, I want. Next thing, if you desire it long enough, it becomes a need. I need that. Now, if you need it hard enough, then you can make it a right. And once it becomes a right, then you go to the legislature and they make it a law. And then once it's a law, it soon becomes a lawsuit. So that's the way it goes. Need, desire, law, lawsuit. Yeah. So yeah. that has to be understood and managed. And you've talked about the endless desire and endless wants when well, you're that, governor facing that, right? No, that's what the Buddhists say. Uh, desires are endless. I vow to cut them down. So that would be good for the legislators. Laws are endless. I vow to cut them down. Yeah, yeah. That would be a good... Uh, yeah. A um, couple things. PG&E. Yeah. Should, it, should they uh, be made a, some sort of a government entity? Or should we no longer have them be a privately owned investor you know, utility? Well, we have public uh, uh, gas and electric company. We have an electric company in uh, Sacramento. We have one in Los Angeles. Um, it's never clear how that works. It could be. You could have local community uh, electricity companies. I think Reading has one. I think... Uh, Santa Ana, so it's nothing that radical. But at the end of the day, you have to have a company that works on the infrastructure, which people weren't thinking of. Uh, you shouldn't be paying all these salaries. And somehow you have to have people looking at these wires because they're going to create fires. Um, but they were diverting a lot of that money that they, they should were. have been spending on that. Well, that's the argument for putting, make it, uh, putting, make it uh, public. I'm not ready to Would you be open to that, that? Well, if you were governor? I'm, I'm not ready to say that yet. This, we got a problem here. You got $13 billion worth of liability. If we get another fire, you can have another $13 billion. By the way, we had a bill that would have uh, uh, spread out that liability uh, a lot better. It's called inverse condemnation uh, that would have, pg would have been liable, but not at the same rate. If you get rid of that particular company and the way that works, then it's coming to the government and then you're going to have your taxes pay for it. And you have the underlying problem is how do we get our electricity? Uh, can we make it safer? Can we go to more decentralization? 
And those are, that's true whether we have a private or we have a public. And I think you, you have some competition. Uh, PG&E was doing pretty well on renewable energy. I would hate to see that uh, slowed down. So uh, there, there's an argument, but I'm not prepared to make such a weighty decision tonight, particularly when I'm not responsible for it. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to introduce the governor's wife right here, Ann Gus Brown, who's been terrific. Your, uh, your sister, Kathleen, said that if you'd married her earlier, you'd be president. You would That's have been president. True. Yeah. But I don't know that I have a better life. Uh, <laughs> by the way, Ann's a good example of the amateur quality, in a good sense, of campaigns. She ran my campaign for attorney general, and she'd never run a campaign before. Had no idea what a campaign was, but it ran pretty darn well. So this is one of the least specialized areas left uh, <laughs> in America. And now they're getting more specialized. They have all these consultants, and but still, it's still got amateurs yeah. and people who are insightful, understand people. Yeah. Um, and can talk and write yeah. uh, and show up on time. Uh, this is a good, a good place to start. All right, we, we really are almost out of time, but I want to put up one other picture. Uh, picture uh, and is ask, that the third commercial? No. I thought you were going to run three. I know, but they started seeming alike. You know, they are You alike. talking into the camera, so I thought we'd skip 92, although we, well, we just don't have time. They can listen to the podcast. That'll be listen more to the popular. podcast, huh? Yeah, okay. So um, this is your official portrait from the first time you were governor. Uh, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that was, I think, unveiled in uh, 1984. Was it take a whole year? Yeah, 84. It was, uh, the, the artist, I think, was Don Bacardi. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what were you going for there? <laughs> well, the truth is... Because we should just say, if you've ever been to the state capitol, if you walk around, all the governors have their portraits. This one is different from all the others. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is different. <laughs> it's different. Uh, I like it better now. Um, you didn't like it when you saw it? It was a little shocking. Uh, <laughs> it didn't look like a gubernatorial portrait. I had no idea that's the way it was going to turn out. The way it started was I asked the um, woman who headed up my arts council um, to, uh, you, you tell me, who, I don't know anything about portraiture. Pick an artist uh, for my portrait. I was thinking of Andy Warhol's, but that seemed a little, I should have done that, but I didn't. It would have been good. Um, or even Hockney. Those were the two. But then I said, I, can't, I don't know about this. Let the, art, the people from the Arts Council. So this woman, uh, uh, Marsha, she decided that and together with another woman who was an art dealer. They knew Bacardi and they picked him. So I showed up and I started sitting for him. Pretty soon, that's what turned out. Now, when we unveiled it um, at Marsha, Marsha Weisman at her house, she had a very nice house, and my father saw it, he really was upset. <laughs> he said, if you don't get another painting, you can never run for office again. <laughs> he did say that, but it was too late. Um, yeah. So you, you're, you've got another chance. And by the way, when yeah. they put it up, the legislature had a hearing. They, there was some debate as to whether they were going to hang it. Why? <laughs> because it's too different. It's too threatening. And it illustrates, shouldn't be shocked by that, politics is about the obvious. It's not about the innovative. Remember, politics is about getting a majority. If you want the majority, you can't get too far out. 
That's not a majority gubernatorial painting. <laughs> but it is artistic, it is creative, and I like the attitude that it express. I look a little worried there, or concerned. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what it says, but it's not happy time. You know, it's not like, it's not, it's all great. And that's kind of the way I feel. I think we're in real danger. A lot of angst, I'd There's say. There's some angst here. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, so, you got so another... that's how it happened. I got another shot. Uh, yeah. So are, what are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking. Are you going to go for something more traditional? I'm not turning over to the Arts Council this time. <laughs> okay. you, you... Well, I'm not, well I'm, th no, I'm not thinking that much about it, but he reminded me. But since that took a year, I, I have a little more time. Yeah. Well, Governor, it's 8.30, and uh, I just want to thank you so I'm much gonna, for... You know, huh? I'm going to have a lot less hair this time. Yeah. Well, maybe you can focus more, you know, on the more, face. Make it more abstract. More abstract? <laughs> thank you all for coming. Thank you, Jerry Brown. The Political Mind of Jerry Brown is a production of KQED Public Radio. Guy Marzarati produced the show. Our live event was produced by Ryan Davis and Lance Gardner and engineered by Jim Bennett. KQED's leadership team includes Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, Holly Kernan, Jonathan Blakely, and Julie Kane. I'm Scott Schaefer. Thanks for listening. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Visit www.calhum.org.